I did nothing differently, and yet it's working. But you know what? The good news is that it is working. All right, so here we go. Welcome to Matthew Felix on air on Facebook Live. Uh, I don't know if anyone... Oh, shoot, I was going to go to Facebook and tell people we were live again, but hopefully they already know. I don't know. Fingers crossed. Anyway, I am really excited to be here. Um, even more excited now that I know that it's actually recording. Uh, it has been a long road and taken a tremendous amount of effort and been a really big learning curve, so it feels great to finally be here. To be all, totally honest, I'm not sure what to expect today, and of course, I'm reading my notes from the first hour. Now I have learned that I really didn't know what to expect, but, uh, but here we are, and like I said, I'm stoked to be here. Uh, as I mentioned on all of my social media posts, this Facebook Live broadcast is just the first of quite a few changes for the show. Today's episode, now that it's actually recording, as well as all episodes going forward, will be uploaded not only to Facebook, they'll be archived here on Facebook if you don't get a chance to watch them live, but they'll also be uploaded tomorrow, each Monday after the Sunday show, they'll be uploaded to YouTube if you want to watch or you know, someone who doesn't, uh, isn't on Facebook wants to watch, they'll be available on my YouTube channel, which you can find on my uh, webpage, MatthewFelix.com. And if you want to continue to listen to the podcast version, like before, when I was just on the radio, then uh, the new version of the show will be available on iTunes, Google Play, and other um, major podcast platforms. So really excited that the show will finally be available in those places. I kept having people say, hey, you know, I was looking for your show, couldn't find it, and now it's just on iTunes, Google Play, straightforward. Um, really excited to finally, to finally get it there. I am also excited to announce that uh, sometime this week, hopefully, I will get the archived episodes from when I was on the radio up on iTunes as well. So in addition to the new shows, which will be there, I'm going to take all of the old episodes, which really aren't that old, and they're not even a year old since I started in February, uh, but I'm going to have those, that, those archived episodes on iTunes as well as, a different, as separate podcasts. I'm going to do two different things. One is... Uh, you know, I had a lot of listeners say to me, why is the show two hours? Two hours just seems kind of long. I got that feedback a lot. And so why are you laughing? <laughs> this, is our second hour. <laughs> this is our second hour. Ironically, we're doing, we are doing two hours this time, but we're only recording one hour. Uh, but anyway, yeah, could you please behave? Anyway, uh, I got a lot of feedback that two hours, two guests was a little bit, a little bit much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the existing, the archived episodes, the previous episodes and split them into one hour segments each. So each previously two hour episode will now be a one, one hour episode. So excited about that. That's the first thing. Second thing is as I was looking at all of the sort of the whole body of work, all of the shows that I've done thus far, I realized that there were three themes that sort of jumped out. First one's travel. The second one uh, I'm going to call, as the, 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 na the name of the podcast is going to be uh, Words and Images. And so that's when I've had writers on, filmmakers, painters, uh, photographers, that sort of thing. So that's going to be, again, Words and Images. Second, or third rather, uh, podcast is for the archived episodes is going to be Society and Culture. And those episodes are when I had guests on to talk about social change, spirituality, women's empowerment, the environment, health those sorts of things. Uh, hopefully one of those podcasts, I'm not sure which one I'm going to start with, but uh, hopefully this week, like I said, I'll begin uploading those to iTunes, Google Play, and the other platforms. And I'm really excited that they're finally going to get out there and be more accessible than they have been to date. Along those lines, a lot of people not familiar with the show have been asking me, you know, what's the show about? 
And so I realized that I needed to come up with sort of a tagline, particularly going forward since, since uh, things are going to be a little different, uh, just to succinctly sort of characterize what, what is the show about. And so looking at the content, coming up with those three categories for the archived episodes, I realized that, that an easy way to sort of characterize all that was, first of all, people who create. So again, that's the writers, the photographers, the artists, and then people making a difference. And that's more the socially oriented or socially responsible, the environment, the health and, and um, women's empowerment, those issues. So for the time being, until I have time to uh, give it more thought, the slogan for the show or sort of the, the tagline for the show is people who create and people who make a difference. If you've got a better idea with regards to a tagline, feel free to let me know. Like I said, that's just uh, that's just what I've been able to come up with thus far. But I think it really does summarize what I've done on the show thus far and what I what I plan on continuing to do. As for today's show, uh, as I also mentioned on social media this week, when she was on the show a few months ago, never mind an hour ago, uh, today's guest, who's really going to be more like the host, uh, very enthusiastically said that at some point she wanted to turn the tables and interview me. Well, at the time, it felt sort of like uh, there was an element of vengeance or uh, maybe the offer sort of bordered on a veiled threat. And so I held off on taking her up on the offer. But when I was thinking about this first Facebook Live episode, I heard her voice sort of echoing in my ears, and it sounded a little more benign this time. And I thought, uh, now, now is the perfect time to actually have her do this. And it's for two reasons, one of which we have just proven, I mean, emphatically proven to have been a good, a good one, which is, in case there were any technical issues, I wanted to be the one who was suffering and not, not some, you know, a guest that I would have had here. So uh, that proved to be a really good move, first of all. The second issue or the second reason that I thought now would be a good time is... Since this is my first Facebook Live episode, and since there might be people watching or people listening on the iTunes or uh, Google Play podcast version, uh, I thought it would just give them a chance to get to know a little bit about me. So here we are, and uh, the person about whom I'm talking, of course, is none other than writer, filmmaker, and Lit Wings founder, Aaron Byrne. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. So let me just give the, uh, the bio here. Aaron Byrne is author of Wings, Gifts of Art, Life, and Travel in France, editor of two vignettes and postcards anthologies, one for Paris and one for Morocco, and she is writer of the Storykeeper film. Aaron's travel essays, poetry, fiction, and screenplays have won many awards, including three Grand Prize Solas Awards, the Forward Indies Book of the Year, an Accolade Award for Film, and the Pinnacle Achievement Award. Aaron has taught writing at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris, at Book Passage Sausalito, and on deep travel trips. And as I also already mentioned, Aaron is host of the Lit Wings event series, which fe features writers, photographers, and filmmakers. Aaron was recently named Travel Writing Curator for the Creative Process Exhibition, which was launched at the Sorbonne and travels to the world's leading universities. Her screenplay, Siesta, is in pre-production in Spain, and she is working on a novel set in the Paris Ritz during the occupation, which is called Illuminations. Welcome again, Aaron. Thank you. So I would ask you what we're going to talk about, but I already know <laughs> kind of what we're going to talk about. Now, the thing is, like I said, when we were off air... You know, I'm doing so many things here and I'm doing it all for the first time. So it's not as if my answers are fresh, you know, in my mind. So I think this is still going to be a pretty spontaneous, uh, interesting conversation. So uh, so but for our listeners, what are we going to talk about? 
Well, we're going to talk about travel and your books and your life and many other things along the way. Sounds good. It was a little bit of a challenge when I said I'd like to interview you, but I think you paid me back because <laughs> I really didn't know that this was going to be videotaped too. <laughs> So. Videotaped. First of all, first of all, there's not a lot of videotape. Well, by the I mean, way, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Whatever. Yes, video. Filmed, I don't filmed, even know. I guess just filmed. filmed yes, whatever. live streamed, pseudo live streamed. <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to be on camera anyway. But you're made for camera. But now, you know, now that I'm doing this for the second time, I'm just not half as nervous. So. No, anyway. you seem way more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like I said, I didn't know that you were not relaxed. Right. Well. So you pulled it off, really Matthew. Well. Yes. We have a rather vibrant group of travel writers in the Bay Area. We sort of think of ourselves as a travel writing tribe. And you seemed to appear on the travel writing scene suddenly, at least to some of us. And we were like, where did this guy come from? <laughs> uh, you were at Weekday Wanderlust. You were at book events and you were... It, you were... Leaping in with questions <laughs> and always talking about the creative process, always, um, always present. And so my question is, where did you come from? Where did I come from? Um, well, it is interesting because I got that feedback from a few people. People a couple times or a few times have said, um, you kind of showed up overnight or something like that, which is particularly ironic given that I've been in San Francisco for over 20 years. But uh, but I had not been part of the travel writing community. And, of course, that's why people are saying that. They're saying that, well, you know, why have I shown up at these events or, or what have you? Um, and, I mean, I think there are two parts to that question. The first one is that, um, you know, when I was writing my novel for the 10 years that I was working on my novel, I was doing that off on my own. And I did try to kind of find some community and try to find some writing groups. And it just never happened. You know, I would go on Craigslist or look in different places, bookstores, and either I got there late or the events were no longer happening. It just, for whatever reason, that part didn't happen. So I ended up spending those 10 years when I was writing the novel really just kind of doing my own thing. Well, then uh, last year I went to the book uh, the uh, book passage travel writers and uh, photographers conference and that's when it started to change. That was very much a game changer in the sense that uh, I didn't know anybody there. I just, you know, showed up. And by the end of it, I knew a lot of people or I had at least met a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, you know, you and I met as an extension of that. We didn't meet at the conference, but we met through a person or people associated with the conference. And why are you laughing? It's just a, it's a, there's a good story about why I wasn't there. OK, uh, we need to we well, need to know the story about why you weren't there. Yeah. Um, so, so really it's the, the, the reason that people in the travel writing community might have this sense that I just appeared overnight is really because of that conference. And after that conference, mm -hmm. I heard, and through the conference, I heard about events that I wasn't familiar with. And then I would start to see people and they'd tell me about other events. And then it turned out to your point that there really is a community. So you do sort of end up crossing path, crossing paths with a lot of these people. So, um, so I guess in that sense, in the travel writing community, I did sort of appear overnight i guess right but you were really you but were i was here writing. all along you were writing here the book. all along you were yes. writing your book yes. yes so i wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about your travel values when i work with writers i often ask them to 
uh, think about their what I call their travel manifesto. And it's basically what you believe, what your values are with travel and how you live them out. And I, I like to have writers sort of write this out because I think it helps us to live out our values when we're traveling. Uh, I'll read you the first, uh, like my first little statement in mine, hoping to kind of, you know, inspire you to think about yours. This is just an example. I believe our reactions to places are initially a reflection not of the place, but of ourselves. And by that, I mean sometimes of our biases and our needs and our current lives. Thus, I allow a place to beguile me. I try not to post, proclaim, pronounce, or otherwise do the charming myself in the place. So I, I try to be aware. I try to almost chase, chase out what's inside of me. I let the place chase it out. Mm-hmm. Other people's might, but, but you know, it's different for everybody because other people might believe that posting helps them feel like, oh, wow, I'm really here. What do you mean by posting? Well, I mean like posting, proclaiming, like, so I just, I, I had been to Spain before, but I just went to Spain recently and, and I loved it so much and I really felt like holding myself back from from like proclaiming that all the time was helpful for me because it was like just a way of feeling it and examining why I loved it and maybe not coming to a conclusion so So, soon yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so I wonder what are some of your travel values and how you live them out so even though I just answered this theoretically an hour ago, it's still a really good question <laughs> because I hadn't thought I had. Well, you know, yeah, I yeah. haven't really thought yeah. about what are my values related to travel. I just I do it. But of course, I do have values and I do have I am approaching it with a certain way, a certain philosophy. Right. So so I think it is a really, really good question. Um, you also, we talked earlier about um that concept of Duende in Spain, the dark thread. So it's like, I believe that that is there in the place. And so because I believe that, I try to sense it. Mm-hmm. And open yourself and yeah. be aware of it. So it's like your philosophy of travel kind of. Well, the first thing that I would say is that I agree with this notion, uh, which you started with, which is that, you know, we see a place, we experience a place at least initially or especially initially um, through our own biases, through our own expectations, through what we may have read or heard or want even to see or experience or feel. Maybe I want to go and I want to have this dark Duende-like experience. So maybe I see that and I live that because I'm searching for that, right? Um, so I agree with that, that inevitably where we go. Uh, but I also agree, and I realize it's not really a question of agreeing, but I think similarly, I guess, um, in the sense of this... When I when I go to a new place or even a, an you know a place that I'm already familiar with because inevitably I'm going to have a different experience of that place even if I am familiar with it. Again, depending upon where am I psychologically, what's going on in my life, what am I looking for at this point. So if I go back to Barcelona, if I've already been there ten times, if I go back now, I've got something on my mind, or I have a new story, or I've gone through a breakup, or I've, I'm going to experience You've Barcelona changed. differently. I've changed. My relationship with that place is going to change. So, all that being said. When I go to a new place or a place, I still do try to do, I think, what you were sort of getting at, which is try to drop my expectations, try to let myself go and just let the place sort of inhabit me. Um, 
you know, I try to feel the place. I try to taste the place. I listen. I observe. I really try to open myself up to that place. And what what am I going to how what am I going to experience in that place versus what I'm looking to experience, what I'm hoping to experience, what I'm putting out to experience. I try to sort of empty myself of these expectations and just, you know, I like to go to a place and just sit for a month. For example, ideally, if I have the time, I'm not someone who's going to try to see all of Spain in two weeks. I'm going to go to Barcelona again, just to use that example. And this is really speaking to my philosophy of travel, I guess. I'm going to go to Barcelona and I'm just going to rent one place and I'm just going to try to go to the same cafes. I'm going to try to have develop some sort of routine for a month and sort of do a mini stay, a mini living experience there and really try to get to know that place. That's much more interesting to me than... Um, and again, a lot of that's just sitting in cafes. It's not necessarily trying to see every museum or try to do every tourist thing. It's just, I just like to be in these places. I just want to be there. I want to sit in a cafe and watch people walk by. I want to be in my apartment and just, you know, appreciate the smells because the smells are going to be different. The sounds are going to be different. And so again, kind of getting back to one of the points I think you're making, I kind of let that come to me and try to be open to to what's going on around me versus trying to fill in some sort of preconceived notion I might have of a place right. or the experience I want to have of it. So how did you live this out on your trip to the stands and what surprised you there? Your recent mm. trip to the stands. How did I live? Well, actually I guess I didn't live this out so much in the stands because I didn't do that at all. So the stand in the sense of I didn't go to one place just to experience it. I actually did move around a lot in the stands. So the stands for me were a bit of an aberration in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that I hadn't had just an adventure. I hadn't just traveled just for the joy of travel mm -hmm. for a long time. All of my trips for the previous decade-ish had been about writing, getting away to go write. They hadn't been just traveling to explore new ground. Sure, sure. And, really, and so the stands was almost sort of this... Um, this luxury, giving myself the chance to travel just to have these kind of interactions with the people and the places and really get to cover new ground. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it sounds a little bit like what you value is experiencing the daily life of a place. That's really interesting to and me. And yes. so you place yourself in places where that happens. Yeah. Maybe not always for a month, but so when you were there in, in, you know, Uzbekistan, for yep. example, yep. like where did you go there to find that pace, to find the pulse of the daily life? Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. Even though I wasn't stopping in each of these places for a month, I would still kind of do the same thing. And mm -hmm. I would still try to seek out kind of the experience, right. the day to day, the... And the way I did that was, for example, I went to Bukhara mm -hmm. because there's just astonishing Silk Road architecture in Bukhara. And you can do it in one day because all of the Silk Road, all of the historical monuments are pretty much in mm -hmm. one place in Bukhara. It's very, very easy to walk and see them all. Very easy to do that in one day. And But I didn't want to. And so I spent three days in Bukhara. Could have spent longer. But I spent three days and I went back to the same places mm -hmm. over and over. Mm -hmm. And I would just sit. And I would watch the people. I would watch the people who lived there. I would watch the visitors. And I might do some writing. But I would just, I would try not to be hurried. I would try to just observe. I would try to, 
again, just open myself to the place. And so I think you're right. Even though I wasn't going, like I had said, going someplace for a month and just sitting in mm-hmm. one place, I was moving around more. But I still, I guess you're right. I still had those certain values that were right. informing how I tried to do it, even if it wasn't. Yeah. It was kind of on a reduced scale, right. time-wise at least. Yeah. What surprised you in the stands? So... Uh, do, do people actually really call them the stands or is that something that I'm doing because you did? Well, no, uh, I, people call the them the stands. stands whether I mean, that's a bit of a misnomer, though, of course, because you have yeah. Afghanistan that's yeah. not included. You have um, Pakistan that's not included in that. It's kind of like we say the Midwest and, um, you know, it's not it's not the Midwest. Okay. Um, what surprised you there? So what surprised me um I'm sorry, I was just looking here because I dropped my mouse and, and there was a big <laughs> lag and I wanted to make sure we didn't have uh, another issue. But what surprised me, uh, first of all, was so before I went, you know, I got a lot of, um, you know, is it dangerous? Are you worried about going? You know, that kind of thing. And and I was a little concerned because I didn't know that much about it. And because what we do hear about them, rather the place, these four countries that I was going to in the stands uh, because we don't hear that much about these places. And what we do hear is normally, you know, civil war or terrorism or it's somehow associated with Afghanistan and Pakistan and what's the Taliban. So we hear so much negative, um, ne- so many negative stories and, and things that I was a little bit nervous. So the first thing that surprised me then before I left was I went on the State Department website, which I always do just to kind of get a sense for, for the level of, of risk. And I was also going to Turkey, where I've lived for a year. And so Turkey, of course, consequently, even though I'm very well aware of their political situations and tensions, um, but nonetheless, I was least concerned about Turkey because that's home away from home in right. a sense. Right. So I was very surprised before I even left on my trip to discover that, according to the State Department, the stands are the least out of the there's a scale of one to four and the stands at least the four that i was going to are all the least severe on that scale mm-hmm. turkey however was a three or a four i think it was i can't remember what it was a three or a four point being it was dangerous versus the stands which were my concern i wasn't concerned about turkey at all other than what i already knew so i was surprised to discover in 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 effect that the stands were safer and this was my experience when i did actually get there they were safer than being here in san francisco I mean, I've said this before. The only time I've ever been held up by gunpoint is here in San Francisco. And I got to the stands and felt completely safe, completely. And now, again, there are dangers anywhere you go. But that was very surprising. The second big surprise, though, in Uzbekistan was how unguarded, how warm and welcoming the people were. I mean, it was it was so touching, Mm -hmm. so heartwarming. Everyone wanted to talk, whether they spoke English or not. And most of them did not. I spent a lot of time speaking Turkish um, because Uzbek is a Turkic language. And so sometimes we could, I could speak my broken Turkish. They could speak Uzbek slowly. We could kind of understand each other. Or there were a lot of uh, Uzbeks that I came across who actually did speak Turkish. Maybe they had worked in Turkey or they'd gone to a Turkish school in some cases. Uh, So, but it was just really surprising to see because I think a, another big thing here is that there's not a really developed tourism industry. So there aren't a lot of people preying on tourists, mm-hmm. trying to take advantage of tourists. Sure, sure. So I could also be more open. So they were really open. Everyone wanted to talk. And it was just so like refreshing. A yeah. Instead of a tourist. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I only saw one other group of Americans. And so, again, just coming back, I mean, the people 
it was just really surprising to see that they were that open, that welcoming, that warm, and just that unguarded. Mm, it was great. Lovely. Yeah, it was really uh, inspiring and encouraging. You've lived in Spain, France, and Turkey. I have. In Spain, you wrote this book. I did. I did. There it is. That I just read. <laughs> Thank a, you for reading a it. Voice Beyond Reason. You do not need to thank me for reading it because I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, the very first thing you do is place me in a little Spanish village, which I just spent a week working on this film with my filmmaker in this little Spanish village and, and in Andalusia yep. and yours where you lived is kind of near where I was, but it's very close, very close. The yeah. very first chapter of this book just took me back. And also the, the, places in the book where you evoke Granada you just like evoke it so sizzlingly so <laughs> thank you it's very transportive but the book is about a character named Pablo and he discovers his intuition and he kind of has this mentor who's an old man Victor and I I picked out this quote and Victor is talking to Pablo as he's trying to figure out like, what's the difference between intuition and logic? And Victor says, logic isn't what gets you there to those reassuring feelings or those validating outcomes. Inevitably, they come after the fact if they come at all. So the book is really about how we navigate following our intuition. And I love that part because we look for the validating outcomes and we look for those feelings. And in this book, you really get down to the nitty gritty of how to follow your intuition, even though at times it's not logical and where that gets you. And in my experience, it gets you to an entirely different more unexpected and more authentic place. Amen. So um, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about how your experience in Spain mirrors Pedro's. Pablo's. Pablo, sorry. Oh, Pablo. That's okay. You said Did Pablo I? the first okay. time. That's I was, okay. Yeah, I have a friend, uh, Pedro. Who's I know you Spanish, do. Spanish. So yes, yeah, okay. Pedro. Um, <laughs> all right. So there are a few sort of issues, questions there. The first one is, so the quote that you read, is at a time when Pablo is waking up to his intuition, but he's still he's still in the process of waking up. So he hasn't in that particular quote, he's have he's battling he's having self doubt because he's having these feelings in his gut. He's he's maybe sensing something in his heart. But so he's feeling these pulls, he's feeling this intuitive pull to do whatever it happens to be at that point. But he's having these doubts because we're so accustomed and we're so trained to expect to have a reason for doing something and intuition and intuition is not enough. And so he's developing, he's waking up to his intuition. He's had some things that he are really, you know, causing him to see, wait, there is something here worthwhile. There is something legitimate here. But when he has to rely on his intuition in the absence of reasons to, to know that his intuition is correct, then he kind of hits a hits a wall, and so that's where that conversation is. Is he's he's progressing along this this awakening to his intuition, but he's still really holding on on to reason. And I think we all do that. I think that um, it's it's one thing to say, oh well, you know, go with your gut, follow your heart, but 
doing it sometimes in the absence of reasons, and you might not ever get that validation even after the fact, is what Victor was just saying, that's really hard for a lot of us. And, um, and, and one of the main themes here with the book that this is touching on is just this idea that we have reason. Reason's completely valid. We, we need logic in our day-to-day lives. Like, I, you know, I love having my computer and my cell phone, and it has its place. But so much of that in our society and in this time, I think, in history, we've said that's everything. That's the end-all, be-all, when as human beings, the reality is there's these, this other side of things. And our intuition is also an entirely legitimate, and it has its own place, its own context, where it makes more sense for us, ironically, to to rely on that intuition and to pay attention to that. And there's something else going on there. And to your point, um, particularly when it's coming to big major life decisions, ye, following our hearts, going with our guts, trusting that inner voice might actually take us to a more authentic place. Right. And so that's those are just kind of some of the things that he's grappling with at that point in in the book. Um, and then you asked me about how that mirrors Your my experience, experience in Spain. Right. Well, I was going through a lot of that when I started writing the book. And so what happened for me was I knew that I wanted to take some time off at that point in my life and just explore my creativity. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. And I had been doing the corporate thing, you know, very stressful, very frenetic, very all, you know, logical, very logical, (laughs) all left brain. And uh, and so what I decided was I need to get away and explore my creativity and kind of balance out my life and and my worldview. And I'd wanted to write for a long time. It just had never gotten around to it because it didn't make sense. Can't, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows if I can make money from this, all that (laughs) kind of stuff. Never makes sense. (laughs) So, uh, but I went away and, and when I went away, it took a few months to decompress, to change gears. And as I started to get further and further away from my day to day life, then I started to hear this voice. And I say that in a metaphoric sense, I didn't actually hear a literal voice talking to me, but I did start to feel more sensations in my gut I started to hear my heart telling me to do this make that decision you know and and I would doubt it and then after not doubting it I would oftentimes get evidence oh shoot I should have done that Mm -hmm. and now it makes sense after the fact but at the time I didn't have that Um, because sometimes we do uh, but that's that's another tangent and so so yeah a lot of what I was going through at that time is what in fact inspired me to write this book because I started to see how I was waking up to my own intuition in a somewhat linear fashion. I could see sure, the process sure. by which I was waking the up. Path. Exactly. Right. And so I thought if I could help one person do yeah, that, because yeah. I think it's so important because mm-hmm. it is about our heart. It is about a greater truth. It's a psychological adventure. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so so I did do that, but what was I going to say? There was something else I was going to say along those lines uh, about how it was mimicking what I was going through at the time. I don't remember. I lost my thought, but, well, it but yeah. It just seems like such a perfect place to be to be writing about intuition and experiencing it because the Spanish people, I felt, just <laughs> like feel that they feel this coming up, well, from the soles of their feet, says right, Lorca. Right, when he's right. talking about this duende, but the flamenco guitarists and the the dancers just, you know, they feel it and they do it. And they, they're bold and strong about it. And the people who I, who, you know, I was teaching on this deep travel trip the first week I was there and 
we met uh, Azahara Flores and Pedro Rame- uh, R- Ramirez, Ramirez. Fernandez. Yeah. <laughs> like pa- they w- sort of showed us how to live from the heart, and you know, so what a perfect place to do that. Flamenco Honestly. is not about the intellect. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Much. yeah. Nothing like yeah. it's it's about it's about feeling it and acting on it. So. Well, and if I can just say one more thing along those lines is. You know, I kind of I ended up in this Andalusian village, which is where I started writing the novel and where the novel takes place, like you said. And that wasn't my intention, actually. At the time, I was trying to get out of Spain. I had actually had a falling out with a friend and I and I had been robbed and I was I was over Spain, actually. And I wanted to get to France. But at the time, I just I couldn't find any place in in, in the south of France where I was trying to live. And um, which sounds all she she. But trust me, all of the south of France is not super she super she she. And but anyway, regardless, I couldn't find a place. And I found this little this little cottage in this isolated mountain village. I could see the Mediterranean from my from my little terrace, but I was it was inland significant, right. you know, right. quite a ways. Not not really many tourists up there. Some mm-hmm. would come during the days to visit, yeah. but it was still an authentic because you know a lot of those villages have been overtaken yeah, by yeah. Um, by northern Europeans and things. Yeah. So this was still an authentic village. Um, but I didn't intend on being there. But once I got there. And once these ideas for the story, for the novel started to sort of germinate and then, you know, one of the big things I did and one of the things that Pablo, the protagonist, does is he takes a lot of hikes. Nature is a really big part of this story as well. And the scenery, the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. landscape is a huge part. But up at the um, beyond the village, a 45 minute hike up, there was this cave where way back when Sufis would live. Or not would live, but the Sufis lived. Right, they had right. fled some ruler who would, was a threat to them. And so these Sufis would teach about Sufism to, to the village. Well, intuition also happens to be a and going with your gut and paying sure. attention to that. That inner voice that Rumi talks a lot about mm-hmm. as well is just that's a huge theme in their, in their teachings. So it was kind of funny to find myself in that mm-hmm. situation, thinking about intuition, realizing that this little village was the perfect setting. Yeah, it even had yeah. that sort of past right. that even informed that. So just to your point of Spain being the right place for this novel, ironically, when I was trying to leave Spain, <laughs> it did. It worked out kind sure. of perfectly oh, in that sense on lots wonderful. of levels. You've also lived in Turkey and France. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's a lot to say. So I guess I would just start by saying, I guess that, um, so I lived in Turkey first before, um, you know, before France came a lot later. And uh, the way I did that or the reason I did that was I was an exchange student in Spain after high school. So that's Mm -hmm. where my relationship with Spain started. I did a Mm -hmm. second senior year of high school in Spain in Valencia. And so that's when my world started to open up to travel and other cultures. And I realized, oh, I can do this. You know, I had never left the country before. And so that's when I really got started and really had that immersive experience, learned the language, ended up traveling all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I graduated from college, though, I wanted to do something similar. I wanted to have a similar, you know, intense year long experience in another culture. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do Western Europe because I'd already done that. And of course, Spain is different from Sweden. Very different. There's a lot of variety within sure. Western Europe. But uh, I wanted something even more different, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think I was looking at Egypt. I would still love to learn Arabic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was looking at Egypt, maybe India. Uh, but then I decided Turkey because it's not Western European, but it's right there on the doorstep. Of course, half of Istanbul is on the European side. And so I would be close to my friends in Western Europe, but still in a very different culture, a Muslim culture, mostly, not sure. not, not exclusively, but largely. Uh 
the whole bridging the east west the silk road all of that mystique really mm-hmm. called to me and at that same time i had a, a high school friend whose parents whose father had been uh stationed in izmir with nato and so he had just been there so he was able to tell me a little bit about it and he ended up going with me for three months of the year that i was there and a couple other people had been recently so it just worked out that um turkey seemed to be uh, the place to go at that time so how did turkey change you Turkey changed me in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind just off the top of my head is um, I just came back a lot more street smart, a lot more street smart. You know, I wasn't living with a family. I did not have an organization helping me. I just got on a plane, knocked on doors, found my apartment, you know, found a place to live, found a job. And... You know, I was 21, 22, however you mm-hmm. old you are when you graduate mm-hmm. from college. And living in okay. Spain was very educational. But um, but again, I was living with a family. I was living in a nice neighborhood. So at that time in high school, that was really outside my box. But now after college, not having the family, not having the organization in Istanbul, just landing there, I had to really learn to rely on myself. I had to put myself repeatedly in situations that were very much outside of my comfort zone, but I made it work and I ended up having a great experience. It was a difficult experience a lot. I was always kind of debating how long I was going to stay. You know, I would have a good week and then I'd say, okay, I'm going to stay. And then I'd have a bad week and I was like, I'm getting that, you know, the hell out of here. But I did end up staying for the year. And, um, you know, I mean, it was just this another really immersive cultural experience in sure. a very different culture. So I just I learned so much. And that the time when I was in Istanbul, living in Istanbul, there was a lot going on in that region mm-hmm. as well. You know, obviously the Middle East, there was different def, different refugee things. There was Chechnya, I think, was going on at that time. Um, there was a lot going on that I would not have been exposed to even just geopolitically. Exactly. That might be little line items in the news that were much more important over there. And just seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kurdish situation was new to me and I ended up meeting a lot of Kurds and learning about their experience in Turkey and, um, experience of minorities. I mean, just so much. I mean, that's, that's like 10 episodes, Yeah. but it was, yeah, the short version there is that it was a profoundly transformative year. The next time I interview you, we'll talk about Turkey the whole time. Sounds good. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay. So you also lived in France. Where I live, well, I lived why? actually. Yes, I lived in France twice. Uh, the first time was in Paris for six month ish, I think. And the reason I did that, I was just I was working on the novel, and I had always wanted to live in Paris. And I think before I went to Paris, I think I was in Spain, and I just decided, um, you know, I was ready to move on, but I was I was not ready to stop writing. I wasn't ready to come back to the states. And so I, uh, I found a place in Paris. I moved to Paris and I ended up staying there six months and I had been many times before. So, Mm -hmm. so in that sense, it wasn't new to me culturally, but you know, it's always different to, uh, to live someplace versus just visiting for a week or two. Um, and so that, that was a great experience. And then I came home for Christmas, I think. And then when I went back, I decided that I wanted to live in the south of France because, again, I had tried to do that yeah. before and I couldn't find a place. So I ended up finding a place uh, outside of Cannes in oh. a, a village called Golfe-Juin, which is mm-hmm. next door. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a villa, top floor of a villa. Their people for the Cannes Film Festival, sure. it was around that time, had backed out. Oh, wow. And so that's the only reason I was able to afford it was mm-hmm. because there was no one now who was going to rent. They didn't, and so I just got a room. I didn't oh, obviously wow. pay for the whole top floor. <laughs> but that was great. And again, you know, because just like... You know, when I went to Andalusia 
having one of the reasons I wanted to leave Spain is because I'd already spent so much time there besides Mm -hmm. the kind of negative things that had happened. And when I went to Andalusia, it was so different because the differences are, you know, in the different regions that I had a very different experience. Absolutely. Even though it was Spain. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to a lesser extent, I had a very different experience or a different experience in the South versus Paris, of course. And so that was that was great as well. I'm wondering if you suffered from reverse culture shock after being there for long periods of time. I know that I just returned from two months and I was in France and Spain as well. And when I returned, part of it is the pace of life here. As soon as the plane landed... It was like I was not, it was not part of my daily psyche to have bing, 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 bing. And everyone was looking at their screens and suddenly everyone was in a hurry and they had to do this. And and it was just like, I was literally in (laughs) shock and just wanted to be in this bubble. And so I wonder after living for a longer period in those, if you had reverse culture shock when you returned. Well, let me say, first of all, one of the reasons I went to Central Asia was hoping. Now, I know that cell phones are everywhere, but I was praying that I wouldn't have to listen to that ding, ding, ding. Just that constant audio assault to which we're subjected in our day-to-day. I mean, it drives me crazy and it drives my friends crazy how much it drives me crazy because I think some of us are just more sensitive and I will own up to being one who's very sensitive to that. Um, there was a lot less of it in Central Asia, but it was still there. There's a lot less of it everywhere else. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, so that's just a a quick aside there. But um, with regards to the reverse culture shock, for me, it's changed a lot as I have traveled more and gotten older, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So when I came back from Spain as an exchange student, gone for the first time from my country for a a solid year, completely immersed in that culture, you know, I didn't I didn't speak English for the year except for when I would talk to, you know, my family every few weeks. Mm-hmm. And even then it would be my English would kind of come slowly, right? right? Sure. Just because it's not like I forgot, but just the, the motor, the muscle, mm-hmm. right? So that was a completely immersive experience. So when I came back from that, that was intense. That was intense because for the first time ever, I was seeing my culture almost as someone not part of it. Now, of course, I was still part of it because, I mean, I grew up here, but I had been gone for a whole year in another culture, speaking another language, studying in another, you know, all my friends being Spanish. So that was a big shock because I saw my own culture for the first time really as somewhat of an outsider. When I went to Turkey, um, I don't remember how much because I did, I came back once or twice. Um, But if we fast forward to say my most recent trip to Central Asia, when I came back, I didn't really have that much shock, I don't think, because... I've now traveled enough that I feel like I just, I sort of know what to expect. I mm-hmm. sort of know that, yeah, this reality is going to be a lot different. And it's not that I necessarily notice it less because I definitely notice it. Right. Um, it's just that it doesn't, it doesn't shock me I as think much. maybe if you're traveling yeah. more often, it doesn't assault your right. senses so much because I had had a period of time before that trip where I hadn't been traveling. Right. So right. interesting. You have a book with open arms. I do. There about it is. Morocco. There it is. <laughs> and I also have a book about Morocco in an anthology. Which is called? Which is called Vignettes and Postcards from Morocco. Thank you very much. And I noticed in your, when you were talking about this book, 
he said something like, I just didn't know if I'd ever return to Morocco. And then there I was again. And it reminded me of um, how sometimes a different place or culture takes a while to work its magic on you. And I mean, I love Morocco now. But the first time I was there, the first, in my introduction to my book is called Kaleidoscoped. And basically, Fez, I was in Fez, <laughs> it just flattened me. Right. There's no personal space. It's like you're back in the 10th century. It's, it's everything. It's the donkeys <laughs> and the goat's heads flying right in front of you and the difference. And I, in my book, quite a few of the writers just had this experience of the place working its magic on them in a slower manner. So the, the story that, that I read from this is called the welcome back again. And it's about, <laughs> it, it's kind of about that process of the culture working its way, working its way into you in spite of some things that happen. Anytime that, that you have an incident when you're, when you're in a country it kind of blocks your wider view of what the place actually is. And also when a crowd gathers, <laughs> our impressions of oh, place intensify. So um, I just wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about your experience in this story and then um, how, how you pieced together your impressions of Morocco based on that. Well, I didn't. And what I mean by that is the the story that you're citing is actually on my second trip and it's the end of my second trip. Mm -hmm. So by that point, I had already really formulated, you know, my impressions of Morocco and right. I was kind of giving it a second chance because I had a lot, you know, quote unquote, because I had a lot of very challenging, difficult experiences on my first trip to Morocco. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and that's actually why I wrote the book. So I didn't, I did not go to Morocco to write a book and I did not, this book is certainly not representative of the Moroccan experience. And this is not, I'm not saying in any way that this is what you should expect if you go to Morocco. I just did, however, have some very crazy experiences and some negative experiences and some funny experiences. But, but going back to the, the taxi ex, uh, experience when I was surrounded by the group and it was, I was this, I don't want to give too much away, but I was in danger. I was in very real danger. Um, you know, it didn't inform my experience so much. The reason I say that is because I think that that experience could have happened anywhere. I mean, to some degree or a, a variation on that experience. You know, I've been screwed by cab drivers in New York, for example. Now, right. I haven't been in the kind of danger that I was in that story in New York. And I haven't been surrounded by 50, by 50 men mm -hmm. in a mob in New York. But um, so there's that angle. And then there's also the angle of when something negative like that does happen, I'm pretty good at knowing that this isn't necessarily, I'm just, maybe I'm just having bad luck or maybe I made a dumb decision or maybe it's not necessarily, I'm not going to say, this bad experience happened to me here. That means that's how this place is. I'm not going to kind of extrapolate. Because again, I've been held up at gunpoint here in San Francisco. That hasn't colored my experience of San Francisco. I might not go certain places. <laughs> I mean, actually, it was where I lived. So, I mean, that, I, my behavior didn't <laughs> really change that much as a result. But point being, like, that negative experience that happened here in San Francisco did not color my whole experience or view of the city. And it's the same with my experiences 
it's maybe not quite the same with my experiences in Morocco, but to a large degree, you know, I, I say in the intro, even though I've had some of these crazy experiences, which is why I'm writing this book, I've never told one person not to go to Morocco, you know, and I would just say, be careful, watch your back, just like you need to anyplace else. Sure. Um, but at the same time, it's true that I could have gone back a third time. Someone wanted me to be their guide and I chose not to because it was too soon after some of these mm. intense experiences. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would go back now happily. I'd be very curious to go back now cause it's been about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back, I think to your original question, I didn't extrapolate that this is indicative because the other thing in the book, yeah, there are some neg- negative experiences. Um, that I had there, but also repeatedly in the book, Moroccans come to my rescue. So in the, in the story that you're right, talking right. about, um, it's a Moroccan who actually got my friend and I out of that predicament. Sure, exactly. and and that story won an award for mm-hmm. the kindness of strangers category yes, yes. in the Solas Awards. Yes. So even though I'm tel- telling this one of the worst experiences of my life, mm-hmm. um, at the same time, there's also a really good human angle mm-hmm. and a really good portrait of morocco mm-hmm. and that angle right we've got the the, the light and the and the dark as right. you like to talk about exactly. right and so by the same token some of the challenging experiences i had in morocco were with other tourists mm-hmm. and so i guess i don't know at this point where i'm going with that just that i think it's just this thing of like the more you travel the less you tried, the less you rely on your collection of impressions of a place. Or say, yeah, A you means B. You can move back from it. Um, there's a story actually in my book by Darren Duford. He's a writer in New York. He's a great writer. And it's he makes that point that it's a whole tapestry and you move back from it. You can't take each individual thread and right. analyze it. Right. So And so many of these experiences are also universal. Yes. Again, I yeah. could I could get screwed by a, a you know cab driver yeah, in New York. Exactly. The book that you're working on now is tentatively titled Porcelain Travels. Yes. It is not the typical book of tacky bathrooms. <laughs> as you Thank you for clarifying out. that. Yeah. And I uh, read a great story from it at Weekday Wanderlust Thanks. in the Mystic this year. And the one that I read was The Bin and the Bomb, and it takes place in Paris. Yes, which is why that's the one I chose for you. Yeah, <laughs> And I recorded, when I was reading it, Seven Belly Laughs. Awesome. And then as I was chopping my tomatoes and making dinner afterwards, I, I indulged in two long sessions so we ended up with two two, we ended up with nine belly laughs (laughs) yeah all right any agents that are out there listening because i've queried 40 so far please take that into consideration and i I really love this thing of like you're kind of starting and you're you're going around with your computer and you're trying to find internet in a cafe which is really not done in paris not like it is here you end up in a mcdonald's which is about the place that you're gonna have find that in paris and then um I don't know. Later on, I found that your experience at McDonald's, like eating all this stuff that you described so hilariously, um, you know, caused you to maybe have this incident on the stairs of your. (laughs) There could be a connection there that I had not necessarily made. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, just in the story, a teaser is that the view of and from the Eiffel Tower plays very heavily in this story. It's a great view. Oh, Matthew, your your podcast, Matthew Felix on air. I really think that you have a gift for bringing people out. 
you made Don George sing. I did that in was, Japanese. Yeah, that was in quite, Japanese. That was, that was exciting. That was pretty amazing. Um, and so I'm wondering what you've learned from your guests, and what what has surprised you in doing that. You've done it for how long? Not a year. No, not yet. No, it started in February, and then I wow. took a month off. Wow. So really, this show was only at the station for four months total, which was like you know about 38 hours you've had it just like a huge variety of guests i've tried like yeah longer to me too yeah, yeah. because doing <laughs> doing two guests especially tonight um yeah. but yeah doing doing the show for two hours and having two guests and you know which i'm not doing anymore going forward because uh, i learned that i mean that was one of the key learnings is i was really it was a tremendous tremendous amount of work that was taking about at least half of my week yeah. So that was one of the learnings, um, which I'm excited because now I can kind of relax a little bit more each week as I'm preparing for the show and give individual guests maybe even a little more thought, put a little more thought into them as opposed to really just trying to to make it work. Um, and I think it did work, but it was it was tough sometimes. So that that was one of the one of the learnings. Um, but then each guest, because there is such a variety. I mean, I'm just, I love the conversations and I'm learning and I, and, I, and I deliberately do that. So, for example, I had, um, you know, dandelion chocolate just comes mm -hmm. to mind. Well, I love chocolate, but I don't know anything about it. And so that was just one example of, you know, something that for me was a really fascinating conversation. And then or but talking with other writers, yeah. because we all do things so differently, especially if someone as most writers are is more accomplished or has done more then I have so much to learn. And so mm -hmm. selfishly, you know, that's really interesting for me. Or I had Colette Hanahan on as my last guest. You know, mm -hmm. she's a painter. I'm not a visual artist. She's the artist in my parasanthal. Oh, that's right. She's, yeah, yeah okay. And um, so that was fascinating for me, just oh. to talk about the process, compare the process, so learn about the visual it. arts. Yeah. Um, so every guest, I mean, a lot of it is kind of selfish. I'm having people on that I know have something that I want to learn more sure. about, you know, sure. and hopefully it's good for them. You know, I try to make it um, obviously a two-way street, but uh, I learn a tremendous amount and it's always different, you know, each show. It's always completely different. Um, and what do you daydream about the future of it? What do you dream about for it? The past two weeks getting set up to do <laughs> Facebook live work. and having the sound work and then having it work for no reason when we did nothing different. Um, I have been so consumed making this change. Like I had no idea, um, which is probably good that the, the change from moving from the radio station to, to Facebook live and YouTube and, and iTunes and all that was going to be so involved, you know, completely starting from zero and learning about the sound and the lights and all the technical aspects. I've been so, buried in all of that for the past two weeks that's been my only so i will think i will dream now for you on the spot um i mean i think it's just the whole thing of you know bigger and better i want to be able to build on what i've done get guests who maybe you know in february wouldn't have returned my emails you know maybe sure. now they'll be more interested because yes. i'll say i've had these people who have done really interesting things and who are accomplished and so i think the more i do and the more i get recognizable people but I still want to have everyone on because because another thing that I've learned this is actually a quick tangent back to the previous question another thing I've learned is that you know and this is going to sound really obvious perhaps but you don't have to be famous or even accomplished to have we all have really interesting stories you know we all have really we're all of us here 
on this earth, we yes, all we have do. really interesting stories. Yeah, true. So for me, when I'm talking about, you know, it'll be nice to have people who are sort of quote unquote bigger names, that's not necessarily at the expense of any of the other guests that I might want to have on who right. aren't necessarily publicly known but have really interesting Are stories interesting. and doing really interesting things. Yeah. So that's also been sort of a learning is just not if you had asked me I would have known that but just to see that live in mm -hmm. action and actually when yeah. when I'm having these conversations it's just brought it into relief in maybe a different way. Uh, but okay so going back to the question though dreaming um, bigger and better you know if um, if I could monetize this, that would be great somehow, you know, if I can develop enough of an audience mm -hmm. just because I need to pay my rent <laughs> and I'm not clear on how that's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, so that would, that would be good. Uh, if it ever turned into some sort of professional gig, I would be open to that. That's not, that's not the goal, but if you say to dream, sure. um, because I really do yeah, enjoy yeah, doing yeah. it. And the reason I'm saying that, you know, I started, so I started doing this because I'm querying agents for the new book. I'm querying agents potentially for an expanded Morocco book also. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just hear platform, platform, platform. I didn't really have much of a platform before January of this year. Mm. And so when the opportunity <laughs> came up to do the radio show, uh, I just jumped on it. And so, but then, you know, since I've been doing it, I just really enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. So now it's not just about that platform. It's about doing it because I love doing it. And I love giving other people the platform. So, Dreaming then again coming third time around back to the question uh, The dream would be just to make it a bigger platform to to be able to do even more with the show Just like I know ne I never thought I was gonna do a radio show. I sure as hell never thought I was gonna be on Facebook live uh, <laughs> yeah. Twice in one night uh, So yeah, just upwards and onwards, I guess All right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, we wanted to do a little plug for the book passage Travel writers and photographers conference which is coming up this week it's Thursday through Sunday at the Book Passage in Corte Madeira. And if you are at all interested in photography or writing, travel writing, you need to drop everything and sign up. I'm sure there are still spaces. But um, Elaine and Bill Petricelli and Catherine Petricelli and Karen West plan at Book Passage plan awesome. such an intimate time and... Our high priest of travel writing, Don George, and our own Bob Holmes photographer are the they're Bob the Holmes they're you need in to watch charge. Out for. Bob, Don Don couldn't recommend more. Bob is I would just be he was in my, he's he, was my la, he was in my last lit wings. A lot of these people Bob has been on this show as well. <laughs> Bob's awesome, and so has Don. But yeah, a lot twice, of these people yeah. I have as guests at my event. Um, the Bay Area people, Jeff Greenwald, Larry Habiger, who's my publisher, Catherine Carnow, she was my very she was my very first photographer at Lit Wings, uh, Michael Shapiro, and this year they're gonna have uh, Michael David Lucas, who wrote The Oracle of Stamble, and his new book is called the The Watchman, The Old Watchman of Cairo, I think, and he, so he's talking about travel writing on fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of my favorite peeps are coming to town for it. The badass editor of Best <laughs> Women's Travel Writing, Lavinia Spaulding, and uh, Candace Rose Ryden, Jim Benning, and uh, Tim Cahill, who's my guru. And there are going to be a lot of attendees there who are also in our travel writing world. Uh, Savani Babu and Sabine. Sabine Bergman, we don't know if you have a new last name or not. I haven't seen a new last name for married. her, but she did just get married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Christina Ammon and Anna Elkins are coming. 
a deep travel is coming to town as uh-huh, mike richardson uh-huh. said when we went to morocco one time <laughs> and they have a few surprises up their sleeve um and you know i first went 10 years ago and it, i've met you know so many dear friends there and my mentors and it really gave me my start in travel writing so um it's just a gathering that will inspire it inspires all of us all year it's so inspiring and um yeah i mean like i said for me it was a game changer Mm -hmm. and it wasn't even just i mean to your point of it inspires all year i Mm -hmm. mean for me it wasn't just the conference we met as a you know one or two people removed Mm -hmm. because of the conference and that's still happening yeah Yeah, meeting people through people and it's it's the whole networking thing which i never do and i'm horrible at (sighs) but at the conference it's just it doesn't it's not about it just it's just really accessible nice people it's so like yeah yeah, it's just it's connections the whole time so you should go if you haven't gone you should completely go so that is again next weekend in corte madera and um neither one of us obviously can recommend it highly enough so before we go a second time, I want to say thank you again to Aaron Byrne for You're being welcome. here a second time a and staying later <laughs> on top of it all. It was, it was awesome. And I look forward to doing it again. So thank you again for thank the you. offer and for doing it. All right. So let's wrap this up here. Uh, next week is all about dreams and dreaming. My guest will be Jane Carlton, who is uh, someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. Jane has a BA in psychology from the University of California at Berkeley and an MA in consciousness and transformative studies, as well as a graduate certificate in dream studies from JFK University. She has taught graduate level courses on dreams, the imagination, synchronicity, uh, as well at the California Institute of Integral Studies here in San Francisco. And she is a presenting member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. So clearly, she is qualified to talk about dreams and dreaming. Uh, She has also honed her workshop leadership skills via a mentorship with dream expert Robert Moss. And that's actually how I met Jane at um, a few of the workshops that she's hosted with Robert. That's also why I'm excited to have her on the show because I know firsthand uh how passionate how knowledgeable and just what a great person jane is so i can't i can't wait to have her on to talk about dreams of dreaming her website by the way if you want to get a head start is yourdreamingself.com and uh thanks again to today's guest me and much more importantly my infinite thanks to writer <laughs> filmmaker and lit wings founder uh aaron byrne her website is e-burn.com I would also like to say thanks to Kieran Byrne, no relation, but he was my stand-in last night um, <laughs> while I was uh, trying to get the camera and everything right. And so uh, he was my guinea pig, essentially pretending to be Aaron for a few hours last night. So his help was invaluable. And as always, I am grateful, uh, very grateful for it. So thank you, Kieran. Last but certainly not least, thank you for watching. If you liked the show, please share on social media. <laughs> if and you liked it without If you could sound. hear it, if you could hear it this second time. Again, yeah. I changed nothing for this episode. So no idea why the sound didn't work the first time. I, I did nothing different for this episode. We but anyway, maybe, we, we thought maybe it was a plot. With Yeah, someone undermined. <laughs> who knows? Uh, but anyway, if you like the show, please share on social media, subscribe, rate, and review on YouTube, iTunes, and or Google Play, please. That's the only way that I get the word out. It's, uh, I can't do it otherwise, and so I really appreciate your help with that. For more about me, my website is MatthewFelix.com, and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. 
If you have any uh, comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at Felix on air at MatthewFelix.com. Thank you very much again for tuning in. And until next week, have a great week. Music credit, Gold Funk by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. License under Creative Commons, Attribution 3.0.